KBCS is powered by listeners just like you. Support this and other KBCS stories, interviews, and highlights by donating at our website, kbcs.fm. 91.3 KBCS Community Radio since 1973. I'm Yuko Kodama. As of yesterday, day 36 of the Israel-Palestine conflict, Jewish Voice for Peace Health Committee reported over 11,000 killed, 67% of which are women and children. Over 27,000 are injured. 270 health facilities have been attacked. 60% of hospitals and 71% of primary health centers are shut down. 198 medical staff and 49 journalists have been killed. 1.6 million people, 67% of Gazans, are internally displaced. There's been an electricity blackout for 31 days, and there's no fuel. Local physician, author, and filmmaker Dr. Alice Rothschild has been working in health delegations in Palestine since 2004. She's a writer on healthcare conditions in Palestine and has more recently written children's books set in Palestine. She also directed the documentary Voices Across the Divide, free on Vimeo. I interviewed her last week. I had immigrant grandparents from Eastern Europe who came in the early 1900s, you know, fleeing anti-Semitism and poverty and all the reasons why Eastern European Jews landed up on Ellis Island in New York. And so the family lived in Brooklyn, both my mother and father's families, and came from Orthodox Jewish families. So my family was a very classic Jewish family uh, at that time. I grew up in a small New England town. We belonged to the conservative temple. My mother was a writer, and so she had a lot of ideas about things. She was a very Jewish woman and very interested in the immigrant experience and in uh, the Holocaust and that kind of thing. So I grew up very immersed in that. You know, as a kid, I went to Hebrew school three days a week, which was a lot of time. And I had a bat mitzvah and that whole traditional training. My family went to Israel when I was 14, and I have the diary I kept, so I know how I felt. And it was like this magical trip to our home, you know, and it wasn't that we were going to ever go there, but, you know, it was a country that could do no wrong and a country that we totally supported. I was in love with Israeli dancing, and I never heard the word Palestine, obviously. And also, when I read my diary now, it gives me the creeps, because I clearly had a very racist attitude towards Arabs, but I didn't know that. And here I had you know, a mother who was pro-civil rights, but somehow there was the you know exception for Palestine, but we didn't have that language at the time. So that's where I started. And it also meant that I was grounded in this idea of, you know, your purpose in life is to work on social justice and to make the world a better place. You know, very traditional Jewish values, which I think are actually good values culturally. I was a child of the 60s, so I went to college during the Vietnam War and got more political. This trajectory continued as I went to uh, medical school. And in medical school, I got very interested in healthcare reform and working towards creating a single payer system, which we still have not succeeded in. Also, as I, I had gone to medical school to be a psychiatrist and then ran into some very Freudian sexist psychiatrists who said things like, to the 10 women in the class, you're here for your unresolved penis envy and that kind of commentary. So that was radicalizing also. I decided that at that moment in history, the most powerful place I could be was in obstetrics and gynecology, which was very backward in terms of its attitudes towards women. So I got much more involved in women's reproductive rights and pro-choice and 
abortion and those kind of issues. So then I did my residency and I actually did a medical internship in the South Bronx of New York, which was, again, a very radicalizing experience. This hospital was in the poorest section of of the city had been actually taken over by the young lords and had a collective running the hospital. It was a very interesting and educational place to train. And I also got to have a lot of insights into poverty and capitalism and all of the impacts on healthcare and that kind of education, which is not your normal internship education. So that was the trajectory I was on. I became, you know, having gone to a liberal arts college and taken almost no liberal arts because I had to take all these science, I um, had an education afterwards and, you know, read about colonialism and settler colonialism and Islamophobia and all those issues that really are how the world works. But as many Jewish people, I did not want to think about Israel because it was such a conflicted area. In my family, if you kind of brought it up, it created a lot of pain and havoc. So, you know, I just didn't. But it was gnawing at me. And it was like this deep inconsistency in my life. And then, you know, I had some children and started thinking about, you know, what kind of children are they going to be? And what am I going to expose them to? And my husband and I both felt strongly that we had a cultural history of being Jews in America and Jews who supported civil rights and labor and, you know, very progressive causes. And also we wanted our kids to understand the Holocaust, but we didn't want them to get a heavy dose of religion. What made you decide to go that route? Well, you know, I do feel like I am a Jewish person. That's part of my identity. So the question is, what part of my culture and values and history do I give to my children? And so this was our way to figure out how to do that with other similarly minded people who had young kids who were Jewish or in partnership with a Jewish person, but who really didn't want to have religion, you know, a traditional religion, but wanted our children to know about what it means to be Jewish and what's the history of Jewish people. And, and also to be able to talk about Israel critically, because, you know, I grew up in the Israel, we love it and it can do no wrong. And if it does, it's just a little democracy in a dangerous neighborhood. You've got to be like forgiving and, you know, they're going to get better. And, you know, it was like that kind of thing. And I feel like I really want to have Israel just be a country like every other country and not have this sort of exceptionalism, which has allowed it to go into places that are really unacceptable as far as I'm concerned. We started developing secular holidays based on Jewish holidays. So Uh, a Yom Kippur holiday that didn't have God in it, but had a lot of self-reflection and, you know, making commitments to apology and then making a better world. And so in 1997, we had one of those Yom Kippur celebrations and a bunch of us were at the Jamaica pond in Boston. One of the traditions is throwing your crumbs into water to sort of get rid of your sins as you face the next year. And we realized that this was going to be the year of Israel's 50th anniversary celebration. And it was going to be a massive celebration in Boston with fireworks and Israeli bands and face painting and, you know, Hatikva and blah, blah, blah. And we thought, well, we need to uh, develop a peace form for this. And we need to try to figure out how to have an alternative narrative. We didn't know what that was, but we knew that we should try to do that. We put a proposal together for the uh, Jewish groups that were running this. And it was basically to have a peace form. We were clueless, but we knew something was wrong and we should figure it out. And we figured that they would say no, and then we would have a protest march. And that was the full extent of our political understanding. And to their credit, they said yes. And we were like, oh my goodness, (laughs) we don't know what we're doing. We 
formed a little grassroots organization and we started interviewing uh, lefty Israelis in the area and Palestinians. And we got a very, very rapid education as to the stories that we were never told and the history that we didn't know and the history of the Nakba and the dispossession of 750,000 people and you know all that stuff that somehow got totally skipped in Hebrew school. And um, we actually pulled it off. 200 people came to this conference in the middle of this very rah-rah nationalistic kind of celebration. Afterwards, we felt like, wow, we need to keep going and we need to talk more about this and we need to educate our communities. I and mean, we had this fantasy that if only they knew the Jews would behave differently. So we started doing community group, you know, organizational events and lectures and stuff. And very quickly, we were blacklisted in the community. And so we were trying to figure out, well, how do we talk about this? Because clearly this is like totally hot button in our communities. And it's also essential that people learn more. And a bunch of us realized that we were all doctors, um, not the whole group, but this subgroup. And we thought, well, maybe we could approach this through health and human rights, because whether you believe in Zionism or you're an anti-Zionist or whatever you are, everybody would agree that a woman should not deliver at a checkpoint, that children should not be hungry, that, you know, I mean, they're basic human things that I, we thought everybody could agree on. So we started organizing health and human rights delegations in 2003, and that went on annually for about 15 years, and I was on almost all of them. And so I developed these intense relationships with uh, Physicians for Human Rights Israel and Palestinian Medical Relief Society and Gaza Community Mental Health Program, and, you know, all sorts of civil society and medical and human rights groups that we would go visit every year. And we would, sometimes we'd work in the clinics, we'd do direct care, we'd do interviews, we'd bear witness, we'd, you know, that kind of stuff. So we weren't a medical mission, we were working in solidarity. So for instance, Physicians for Human Rights Israel has a Saturday mobile clinic where they go into uh, the West Bank to a village that is chosen by the Palestinians there, uh, usually Palestinian Medical Relief Society, and provide care for a day. And so you go to a village that is totally shut off from everything because of all the checkpoints. They've taken their whatever big building they have, like the Women's Center or some kind of building, and we set up a clinic and we just start seeing patients. It was very powerful to work in solidarity with Jews and Palestinians who were working together, but it was also very educational for me. Like, what does it mean not to have healthcare? What does it mean not to be able to leave your village? What does it mean for settlers to be pulling up your olive trees and you don't have any olive oil and you don't have any money? You know, like that became like really clear to me. And after that effort, folded, I continued to go on almost annual delegations. And in the course of this time, I went to Gaza four times. And the last time was in August. So I was in the West Bank and in Israel in July, and in Gaza in August. So it was the kind of thing that the more I knew, the more I was drawn into learning more, and also working in solidarity with people who were trying to make things better. And so I was part of a variety of organizations. The main one is Jewish Voice for Peace. And so at this point, I'm on the steering committee of Jewish Voice for Peace Health Advisory Council. So we're basically continuing that kind of work of examining and talking about occupation and siege through the lens of healthcare and human rights. And so that's been my trajectory. And sort of on the way, I wrote three books about health and human rights, which then, you know, made me an author <laughs> and uh, then allowed me to like 
go places that wouldn't invite an activist, but would invite an author, particularly a doctor author, because that's incredibly respectable. And then I could say all sorts of outrageous things. You know, it was really a great gig, you know. Then while I was doing that, I realized that when I had Palestinians in the audience, when I was giving a talk, that they would want to tell me their story. And I was like, this is so wild. I'm like an anonymous Jewish woman who drops in and you want to spill your guts to me about, you know, your trauma in 1948 or 67. I mean, this is amazing and interesting to me. And I should write a book about that. So I started interviewing Palestinians who wanted to tell me their story. And a cameraman heard about this. And anyway, it ended up that these interviews were videotaped. And I came back to Boston. I'm going to transcribe this, use it for my book and give this footage to some filmmaker who will want to do something. And everybody said, it's your film. And I every said, no, no, I'm a gynecologist. I don't make films. And that went on for a while until I was convinced that I could make a film, particularly if I coalitioned with a real filmmaker. I found this wonderful filmmaker named Sharon Mullally in Philadelphia. And together we embarked on this project. But it turned into, I think, a very decent documentary called Voices Across the Divide. And basically, I told the history of the region through the voices of Palestinians I had interviewed. So rather than say in 1948, blah, blah, blah happened, I had, you know, George Lurie talking about what happened to his family in 1948, you know, and so it's very personal and intimate and very believable because people are telling their own stories. And there's so much walls around the stuff that I felt like if I can do personal stories that people will be able to hear it because they'll see another person like them a kid or a baby or a mother, you know, that they can relate to. And the film actually premiered at the Boston Palestine Film Festival, co-won the Audience Award. You know, it, it turned into a real thing. And, you know, it's been shown at a bunch of film festivals. And every year on the anniversary of the Nakba, I get all these requests to come talk about the film because it's being shown somewhere. It's now on Vimeo. And it's a good entry film. It's a good way for people to get a quick history, very intimate, very personal, and just hear it sort of laid out. And then with the kids' books, it dawned on me that there was very little in the children's literature of any decency <laughs> about Palestine. So I got this idea that I would write a book for kids about Palestine. And that was about eight years ago. And so I worked with children's writers and children's writer societies and learned about how you write children's books. And so I have a young adult novel that came out in January called Finding Melody Sullivan, which does not sound like a book about Palestine, but is alert, alert. Uh, <laughs> but I want it to be engaging and I want kids to read it and not think they're being told about Palestine. You know, I want them to just have it be organically part of the book. And I have a middle grade book called Old Enough to Know, which is coming out in December. So these are two of my ongoing contributions to children's literature. But my goal is to get this out in the world and to have it in schools and libraries. And it's, you know, it's very controversial to have a book that's sympathetic to Palestine in a public library, and that's really a tragedy. So we have to normalize Palestine, normalize this discussion about Israel. You know, Palestinians are refugees. They should be in the part of the library about refugees or, you know, I mean, or immigrants or whatever categories there are in a library that kids wander around. This should just be part of the story and, and not make a big fuss. So that is my goal with that. I grew up with we lived through the Holocaust, and so Jews always use the we as if we all lived through the Holocaust, but we've taken it on as our cultural trauma. And then Israel was created out of the ashes of the Holocaust to create a safe place for Jews. That was the, the narrative. And there is like an ounce of truth in it. And there clearly was a horrific Holocaust, and Jews clearly were not invited in any other countries to go. And all of that is true. 
But I didn't learn about the history of Zionism, which was more a colonial settler movement that was mimicking the British Empire. And the British were just as eager to get rid of their Jews as everybody else. First of all, the Zionists thought maybe we'll go to Uganda or we'll go to Latin America. And then they hit upon, oh, we could go to Palestine because, and then we could use the Bible to justify our going there. And that whole very complicated history, I didn't know about. And then, you know, that there were people who were opposed to it and there were people who were into binationalism and you know all that stuff I didn't know. Learning about that made the subsequent history much more understandable. It's like, why was there a war when they started the country? Why didn't those Arabs just take their 45% that the UN gave them and be happy with that? What is wrong with them? They hate Jews. I mean, you know, that all got challenged. And so the idea that there was and indigenous people who were actually living there. I mean, it started out with maybe 7% Jews and then with the different immigrations, particularly from Russia and from Eastern Europe, because of horrific anti-Semitism, it got up to maybe 30%. But, you know, they were in the minority, they were on the coast. They were not the people who'd been living there for hundreds of years. And I began to understand why the people who'd been living there for a hundred years might object to being colonized, having their land taken away, and that maybe they would fight back. And then it suddenly made a lot of sense. So, I mean, one of the things um, that I didn't understand was 1967 and what happened with the Six-Day War and the implications of that. And I remember it was really one of those moments. This woman named Hilary Rantizi, who grew up in Mamala, her father was, I think, the mayor of Mamala. She now lives in the Boston area. So she told us what it was like to grow up under occupation with, you know, Israeli tanks parked outside your house. And that, you know, I still remember her saying that. And I was like, an Israeli tank parked outside your house? Wow. You know, it's like, oh, occupation is really oppressive. The soldiers are really aggressive towards the Palestinians. And, you know, the idea that people might object to being treated that way was like, I got it. This is like, a whole different narrative than the one that I had been taught. And it's not that the Arabs are evil and they hate Jews, is that their land got stolen and now they're living under occupation. You know, it's like, it was a whole different framing. And once I got the framing, then all these other things were understandable to me. And, and that was really important for me to see. And also I had grew up with what I now understand was very racist attitudes towards Arabs. And I'd never met an Arab. So it's like, you know, as soon as I got that, the light bulb went off, I was like, wait a minute, you need to meet some Arab people, you need to meet some Palestinian people, you need to study the history, and you need to understand why you grew up with this messaging, and um, what the, quote, full story is. And so it was very liberating to find out the full story, and to really become very close to Palestinians, and to understand what their history was. And it was particularly with my interviews for my film, which came years later, that I got very involved in the history because I was interviewing people who thought they had it all together and they were just going to tell me their history. And then, you know, a half an hour later, they're sobbing into the camera, you know, and I'm like, oh, there are all these wounds here. And there's all, and people are like, I, I can't believe I'm crying. You know, I mean, there was one guy who um, his family ended up in Kuwait. So he grew up in Kuwait, which is a tough place to be Palestinian because there are all these rules like you can't go to the university and you can't have jobs and you can't own property and that kind of because Palestinians living in other Arab countries have not usually been treated well, except Jordan was a bit of an exception. And he thought that he was like, just going to sit here and have this intellectual conversation with me. And then he started describing leaving Kuwait to go get his education in the United States and what it felt like to leave his mother, who he'd never left, 
and the idea that he might never see her again. And he started weeping and he was stunned. And so, you know, I tapped into all of this pain that people felt that they carried with them as refugees here. And so all of those things really deepened my understanding of what this all means. And it, it, it's not that the Jews are the only people who've suffered. I mean, we have suffered and we've also succeeded. You know, uh, we have a whole history here. But Jewish suffering is something that Jewish culture holds on to as very like, we are the, the, the king and queen of suffering. And it turns out that lots of people have suffered and lots of people are filled with grief and lots of people have had a huge amount of pain and dispossession and aggression towards them. And we need to pay attention to that because that's what unites us in some way. And they're not the enemy. It's particularly disturbing when a state that says it speaks for the Jews, although I would like to say that it doesn't, is the cause of that suffering. That's highly problematic for me. So that's kind of how it all evolved for me. I grew up with this idea that you know Jews are the people who always get attacked and Jewish suffering is something that has been transmitted through the centuries. And the idea that I didn't have to carry that weight as the way I approached the world and that I could empathize with other people and their suffering and also understand how Jewish power had caused their suffering made things make sense. So it's not like the Israel lives in a sea of savages who are always trying to destroy it. It's that Israel is a settler colonial state that privileges Jews over everybody else and does things that make the people who are not Jewish, very angry. It was great to find a community of like-minded Jewish people who shared this exploration. And, you know, one of the big fights we had in our group was, you know, is Zionism racism? And there were people in our group who were so offended by that. And there were people who were like, wait a minute, you know, let's talk this out. So we evolved over the decades and we struggled over the decades. And it was wonderful to have a community of Jews, and then it became much larger than a community of Jews, um, like-minded people, including many, many Palestinians, who we could have these conversations with and we could learn from. Figuring out that opposing Zionism is different than anti-Semitism or criticizing the state of Israel is different than anti-Semitism is really critically important to think clearly. And so it takes a while to like work it through, work it through until you get that concept in your brain. And then it's like, of course, that's true. You know, so it's been liberating to be in a space where I can figure this out with other people who are not, you know, screaming at me and calling me a self-hating Jew. I mean, one of the very first sort of actions I did when I was this was all unfolding is I went to a demonstration against something Israel was doing. And this little old lady comes up to me and she obviously was a Holocaust survivor. And in a very thick German accent, she comes up to my face and she says, you should have died in the camps. And that was pretty terrifying. So that was like a key for me to see how wounded and fearful she was. And I didn't want to live in her space. I needed to have a space where I could live, where I could criticize Israel and not be a self-hating Jew. In the War of 1948, which was, it's called the Israeli War of Independence or the Arab-Israeli War, the result of that war that there were some 750,000 Palestinian refugees were driven out of their homes in the areas that became the state of Israel. And so a lot of these refugees then, you know, they fled with, you know, the clothes on their back. They ended up in 
the West Bank, which at the end of the war was controlled by Jordan, in the country of Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria. They started out poverty-stricken, living under trees, living in caves, desperately desperate. And then the UN created an agency called UNRWA, which is the UN Relief and Works Agency, that is responsible for providing housing, education, and food for the refugees. And it was thought that this is like a little temporary thing. They'll tide them over until all of this you know, dies down and everybody figures it out. So the UNRWA set up uh, these huge tent camps where the refugees stayed in these different countries and places. Then as time went on and it became clear that they were going to be there for a while, the UN then provided them with little concrete houses. So you had you know, a two-room house with a family of 10, the grandparents and five unmarried sisters. You know, it was just like intense crowding, no plumbing, no electricity, you know, just a horrific way to live. And then as the years went on, people started you know, adding to these little buildings and making them bigger. And in and, and Gaza, they were also located in Gaza, which was uh, controlled by Egypt. And so now we have these massive refugee camps with a total overcrowding. And people, you know, people are doctors and lawyers, and they live there and they have their families. And But there's these camps. And according to international law, refugees have a right of return, which means that if you're a refugee that's driven out of your home in a war, that when the war is over, that you have a right to return to your home. And the Israelis said, absolutely not. And they also then destroyed some 500 villages to be sure that people had nothing to come home to. And the reason that Israel doesn't want these refugees to come home is that first of all, they have a narrative that it's not really their home. They just happened to wander through a couple of hundred years ago. Where are the real people who it's the home? Because in the Bible, God said it was our home. And these people do not get to call it home. And they also want to have a Jewish majority country. If refugees from the camps decide to come home, and it's not clear if they were offered return or reparations, what people would take, that then Israel would no longer be a Jewish majority country. And so that's like a big issue for Israel, because not only do they want to have a Jewish majority, they want Hebrew to be the only accepted language, and they want the Hatikva to celebrate Jewish whatever, and you know they want to be in charge, and uh, they don't want to have to share this with Palestinians. So the refugee issue is a major, major issue in every negotiation. And one of the problems with, uh, there was a big uh, peace accord called the Oslo Accords in 1993, was that they decided not to talk about the refugees. That was something that Israel refused to talk about. But that's like a, an issue that's screaming to be heard. And you can imagine, you, you're a kid, you're growing up in a refugee camp. Um, if you're in the West Bank and you're in a refugee camp, you have frequent invasions by the Israeli army. You struggle to get enough money, food, education. All, you know, it, it's a terrible way to have to grow up. And so you'd have now several generations who've grown up in the camps. And the vast, vast majority of people are nonviolent. They uh, they always talk about existence is resistance. You know, that just the fact that they're still there is the way they resist. They get up in the morning, they feed their eight children, they get them to school, they go to work, they do whatever, and that that's how they resist. But these kind of places also generate a more militant resistance. And this happens because there have been decades of intense Israeli aggression and dramatic military actions and thousands of people being arrested. And when you get arrested by the Israeli military, 
there's a big chance that you're going to end up in something called administrative detention. And I've been to Ofer prison. I've talked with people who are prisoners. I've talked with people who are lawyers. And administrative detention is a thing that Israeli military or prison people do, where they arrest people and then they don't charge them and they just keep them and they don't uh, ever deal with their case. So they're charged. There's no trial. Three months, six months, a year, two years, however long they want, they just keep you there. And the prisons are really awful places to be. And then there's a huge amount of um, interrogation. There's a huge amount of pressure for people to trade freedom for collaboration. So the Israelis have built a whole army of collaborators who are all beholden to Israel, who uh, have promised to spy on their neighbors so that they can get out. And they've also done this in the healthcare system, where part of the oppression of occupation and siege is that uh, there is a policy of what we call de-development of the medical system. So the Israelis don't allow hospitals to develop, to build, people to get out of the their occupied territories and go have high-level training. You know, all the things that make a healthcare system successful and up-to-date, they don't allow that. What happens is that if you are really sick and you live in the West Bank or in Gaza, you have to get out. And so West Bankers usually go to these hospitals in East Jerusalem that are higher level hospitals, or sometimes they go to Jordan. And uh, people in Gaza also have those options. But you have to get a permit. So what it means to live under occupation is that if you want to go from point A to point B, you have to go to a special place. You have to apply for a permit. You have to wait for it to be approved or not approved. And then, you know, it's a permit for a month or two months or six months or a week or three, one appointment or you know, whatever it is, you only get to move around depending on what your permit says. So what's happened is that lots of people who are very sick are told by the Israelis, and this has been documented by Physicians for Human Rights Israel, that if you want to get your permit, you're going to have to be a collaborator. So you have to choose, do I get my chemotherapy for my cancer and agree to spy on my brothers and sisters, or do I die of cancer? Those kind of things make people very angry and they can make people very militant. There was a study that showed that, you know, there was a time when there were suicide bombers attacking Israel, that the majority of suicide bombers had had their homes demolished when they were children. And one of the reasons why there are so many homes demolished is that in the occupied territories, you cannot build a home, you can, even on your own property, you cannot put a porch on, you cannot add another floor on because your daughter has just gotten married and she's pregnant and she, you know, whatever it is, you can't do that without a permit. Well, it's almost impossible to get permits. So people have to choose either squishing together in a tiny house with a lot of people or just building that second floor. And so they build that second floor and then the bulldozers come and they bulldoze the house. Thousands of Palestinians live under the threat of home demolition. So they know that the papers have been served and they don't know when it's going to happen. And it could go on for years. So imagine living in your house, knowing that at any moment, an Israeli bulldozer could come along and bulldoze your house. Now you are given a choice. You can take down your own house or you can let them take it. And then they charge you for the fee of bulldozing their house. So you think this makes people angry? You think this makes people frustrated? So I think people need to understand what Palestinian life has been like. And the thing is that while this is all going on, there's a culture of joy and love and tremendous attitudes towards education. The majority of Palestinian households spend the majority of their money on education. Like in Gaza, 
It's an incredibly educated population with a lot of high level degrees. I mean, I've been in refugee camps where I'm with a family with, you know, 10 kids and they all have master's degrees. None of them have employment, of course, but they all have master's degrees. So, you know, it's not like people have turned into mushrooms. They have a vibrant life, but it's constantly being squashed. My last trip when I was in the West Bank, I visited a town that had recently had an attack on a group of civilians that was done by Jewish settlers. So one of the problems is that even though the West Bank is supposedly supposed to be the future state of Palestine, according to the Oslo Accords, the Israelis, whoever is in charge of the government, uh, they have uh, supported a very aggressive uh, movement to build Jewish settlements in the West Bank on the land that's supposed to be the Palestinian state. So basically, just so you know, the, the Palestinian state has been killed by Jewish settlements. And what's happened is that um, the settlers have gotten more and more egregious, more and more aggressive, more and more fundamentalist. And now with the current government, which is you know, the most right-wing government we've had, the settlers are unleashed. And so there was a group of hundreds of settlers who attacked this town, burned homes, shot people, you know, did horrific things, tore up olive groves. You know. And we went and visited this man who was actually a Palestinian-American, and he'd moved his, his family back because he wanted them to have a sense of being Palestinian and to be proud of Palestine. And just he wanted his kids to speak better Arabic. And they're, they're in their house, and these maniacs come and torch the house and burn his garden. So that was kind of in your face and reminded me of things that used to happen to Jews in Eastern Europe. We were visiting these farmers, and they had sheep and goats. And we saw these nice little goats tripping along down the hill, and we were like, oh, goats, how cute. You know, they're very charming and everything. Well, it turned out that those goats and the shepherd with them had just been run off their grazing area by Jewish settlers who had guns and were very aggressive and were beating people up. And it's not like the Palestinians walk around with guns. The Jewish settlers walk around with guns. So they got run off this grazing area and they were returning with their goats who hadn't eaten. And then this group of farmers took us to their olive groves. And the night before, a group of settlers had come in. They must have had some heavy equipment because they, they didn't just chopped down the olive trees. They dug them out like a deep hole, like a six foot deep hole. And then they poured poison into the hole so that the soil would be contaminated. And then they dug up the agricultural road that the Palestinians would have to use to bring more trees in or to repair. You know, this is like daily life in the West Bank. And this is particularly in an area called Area C. So in Oslo uh, Accords, the West Bank was divided into three sections. Area A, is the Palestinian cities like Ramallah and Hebron and Nablus and Kalkilia, you know, cities. And the Palestinian Authority, which is the governing authority in the West Bank, is in charge of you know, running that area. And they have some security as well, although the Israelis always reserve the right to run them over. And then area B is sort of the villages and the sort of areas that are not major cities. And in those settings, the Palestinian Authority runs the place, but the Israelis have total security control. And Area C, which is 65-ish percent of the West Bank, is under total Israeli military and governmental control. And that's where most of the settlements are. So we spend a lot of time in Area C and talking with people over and over again about 
what the settlers were doing, how they were destroying their lands, how they were digging up their olive trees. And we visited these groves and we talked to farmers and it's not a subtle finding, this is happening. And there are a whole bunch of communities now that now have been run out because of repeated settler attacks. You're attacking people who 75 years ago were run off their land. You know, this is like multiple generations of trauma. We worked a lot in West Bank and Gaza. We worked a lot with what's called UAC, which is the Union of Agricultural Worker Committees. And they work with farmers and fisher folk and women and rural women and that kind of thing. And we spent time with fisher folk in Gaza. There's a big port. You know, and if you think about it, Gaza is a coastal community. And before all of this happened, fishing was like one of their main things. And they're famous for their fish recipes. And well, the Israelis have um, rules about how many nautical miles the fishermen can go out. And it's much less than international rules are. And it's constantly changing. And so a fisher folk go out in their boats and they get shot at and their boats get destroyed and they get pushed off their boats. They've lost children who've been shot at. We sat and listened to this tale of woe. And then you wonder why Gazans might be angry at Israelis. It's it's appalling because you think about it. You're a fisher folk. You have had this boat for decades. You inherited it from your father. You This is all you know. This is how you support your family. And then the Israelis shoot up your boat. And then you have no boat. So you have no income. You're living in a poverty-stricken area to begin with. And then you have no way to make a living. So then you end up working on someone else's boat. So you're making even less money. Yeah, you know, it's just... It's really an appalling situation. And this is what living under siege means. People may not understand that East Jerusalem is the Arab side of Jerusalem. So after the War of 48, there was an armistice line that went through Jerusalem. So West Jerusalem was where the Jewish population stayed, many of them living in these gorgeous old Arab Palestinian homes. And East Jerusalem was where the Palestinians fled to, and that was controlled by Jordan. And then in 1967, when there was the Six-Day War, the Israelis captured East Jerusalem, as well as all the other territories that we've been talking about. So the Israelis claimed that East Jerusalem was part of Jerusalem, the united capital of Israel forever. And Palestinians claimed that East Jerusalem is the future capital of the Palestinian state, which has now been destroyed by settlement activities. So anyway, in East Jerusalem, there are a ton of Palestinians, because that's where they live. And uh, there has been decades of attacking Palestinians, creating all these false legal justifications for running them out of their homes. And so I have literally visited, I, I visited an elderly woman who was living in the back of her home with her you know, grown children and multiple grandchildren. And there were settlers living in the front of her home. And they had forcibly pushed her back into the back of her home. And the settlers had hung this huge Israeli flag over the front of their house. She was huddled back there, fairly freaked out. There was, I don't know which activist group had set up a tent on her side of the garden as a support team, but you know, she was gonna lose this house. And you see this over and over and over again in East Jerusalem. You know, the Israelis did this whole archeologic dig called the City of David. And archeology span is very loaded in Israel and in the territories. And it's very controversial. So if you talk to lots of archeologists, they really condemn the kind of archeology span that's going on in East Jerusalem and in a lot of Israeli digs because the Israeli archeologists span dig to prove that 
Jews were there and it's theirs. And they find all the reasons to prove that by finding things that are related to Jewish history, which you will find. But you will also find a lot of things related to other people's history, because this is an area of the world that has been colonized over the centuries, multiple times by multiple cultures, and they're all layered on top of each other. I mean, if you go to the Wailing Wall, which is where the old temple used to be, but it's also the side of the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, there is this amazing museum and you basically go in and you go down steps and you go down, 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 multiple, multiple stories. And basically you're going through all the layers of history that were there. But the way the Israelis present this history is, here's proof the Jews were here, here's proof the Jews were here, here's proof the Jews were here, and we're going to kind of toss out everybody else. And that's a lousy kind of archaeology. So it's very politicized, and it's very detrimental to people understanding the full story. So anyway, that was a diversion. But in East Jerusalem, you will find Palestinian families in tents living outside their homes, and these uh, very aggressive Orthodox Jewish settlers living in their homes. It's just, it's appalling. You know, I've been to, home, you know, demolitions where, you know, the Palestinians are outside screaming and crying and the bulldozers are whacking down their houses. And, you know, it's like, this is like insanity. And it doesn't, you know, make friends and influence people. It's a very racist Jewish supremacy kind of approach to making a country. And here's a country that says it speaks for Jews. And I'm like, not in my name. I will not support this. It's not something that's defensible and, and it's highly problematic, both for Jews and for Palestinians and for, I mean, think of the neighborhood. The slaughter that's going on in Gaza is stirring up Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Iraq, Iran. I mean, how long are people in those countries going to sit quietly by? It is so dangerous for the whole region. And yet, you know, the military is bombing Gaza City, and they've been bombing hospitals, ambulances, health centers, schools, mosques, churches. I mean, this is unacceptable. And I think we have to say that loud and clear. If my mother saw this happening, she would be devastated. You know, this is not what people fought for. It's pretty intense. It's pretty wild. And it's very, very dangerous. And so that's why we have to be out in the streets. We have to be, you know, chaining ourselves to federal buildings and taking over the Statue of Liberty and doing whatever it takes to get people's attention, because this is a genocide, and it's being live-streamed. That was Dr. Alice Rothschild, physician, author, filmmaker, and activist, speaking with me last week about conditions in Palestine over the past decade. Rothschild has written books on health and human rights issues, the latest being Condition Critical, Life and Death in Israel-Palestine. Her young adult novel, Finding Melody Sullivan, about Palestine, came out earlier this year. Another book for middle-grade readers, Old Enough to Know, will drop in December. You can find a free stream of Dr. Rothschild's documentary, Voices Across the Divide, on Vimeo. For more information on health updates in Palestine, you can visit jvphealth.org. For more radio highlights, interviews, and stories from KBCS, go to kbcs.fm or pick up our podcast anywhere you pick them up.